Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Did you ever wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and just start thinking? And you started thinking so much that you couldn't get back to sleep? Yeah, that was me last night. I started thinking about all the words that we use in our society that are redefined to actually pass off a lie as the truth. And so I got up and I started to type them all into my confuser here, my computer here. And I always want to talk about some of these words that have crept into our culture, crept into the church, that don't really mean what they should mean. And they're basically put forth, as I say, to pass off a lie as the truth. I don't know who said this, but somebody said this many moons ago, and it makes a lot of sense. The statement is, beauty is the battlefield upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. Beauty is the battlefield upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. We're all attracted to beauty. We're all attracted to good things. And so if you want to pass off a lie as the truth, you have to wrap it in a good thing. If you want to deceive someone to believe a falsehood, dress up the falsehood to look beautiful or at least more attractive than it is. Now, this, of course, is deception. Now, one problem with deception, as you know, is that you don't know you're being deceived. If you did know you were being deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. Deception is like that. Satan comes as an angel of light. He's not going to come bearing all of his evil and ugliness. He's going to come bearing what appears to be attractive. So you're attracted to it and will then follow him. We're all attracted to beauty. We're all attracted to good things. Things like love, equality, justice, sex, power, money. Those are all good things. And that's why those good things are usually caked onto lies to get us to swallow the lies. Now, we do this with language, as I mentioned. And let's just go through some of the words or phrases that are used in today's culture and even in the church sometimes that sound good, but are redefined or they are, they are sugarcoating something that really isn't good. How about the phrase, your truth? Have you heard this? Sounds so Oprah Winfrey-like because she says that. Oh, you have your truth. Follow your truth. Follow your truth. Well, the truth of the matter is <laughs> there is only the truth. There is not your truth. If something is true, it's true whether or not you agree it is true. Look, if it's true that the earth goes around the sun, but you think the sun's going around the earth, it's not your truth that the sun is going around the earth. It is really true that the earth is going around the sun. Now, from an observational perspective, it does look like the sun's going around the earth, but that's just not really the case. It's true observationally. And the Bible's written observationally. So the Bible talks about sunrise, sunset, and we still do today. You know, if you watch the news tonight, 
The weatherman's going to say sunrise tomorrow at 712. He's not going to say earth rotation will become apparent at 712 a.m. No, he's using observational language. But the truth is the truth, whether you believe it or not. There's not your truth and my truth. There's just the truth. Now, our beliefs, you could say you have your beliefs about the truth. That's certainly true. But that doesn't mean your beliefs are necessarily true or false. They have to align. They have to correspond with reality to be true. They have to align with reality to be true. And as Ben Shapiro has said repeatedly, facts don't care about your feelings. Doesn't matter if you feel something's true. If it's not true, it's just not true. Facts don't care about your feelings. And as you know, you've been listening to this show long enough. If somebody says there's no truth or there's no objective truth, you just ask them, is that true? Because the claim that all truth is subjective, all truth is just your truth, not the truth, is actually purporting to be itself an objective truth. It's saying it's objectively true that all truth are, su are subjective. It's objectively true that there's only my truth. Well, wait a minute. That truth, that all truth is my truth, is, is claiming to be objective while at the same time claiming to be subjective. It's, it's self-defeating. It's self-contradictory. To say there's no truth is a truth claim. Now, you may have heard that in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary said that the word of the year was actually a compound word, post-truth. Now, they didn't mean, post-truth doesn't mean that um, truth is relative or the postmodern view that there is no overarching meta-narrative or there is no overarching truth is, is the case. Post-truth actually means this, and this is the Wikipedia definition. And you can't always trust Wikipedia, but I think they have it right here. Post-truth is defined as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping a public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, unquote. I think they have that right. We do live in a post-truth culture. People are more interested in following what's attractive rather than what's really true. People are more interested in appealing to emotion or their own personal beliefs than to actually looking at the evidence and lining up their beliefs with the evidence, lining up their beliefs with reality. People want to create their own realities now. They don't want to adjust to reality. They want to try and adjust reality to them. In fact, that's pretty much the difference between what we would call conservatives and leftists now. Leftists want to try and change reality to fit their desires, whereas conservatives generally are trying to change their desires to fit reality. And so reality is what it is. You're not going to change truths about reality. You're not going to change the fact that the sun is not going around the earth, the earth's going around the sun. You're not going to change the fact, as controversial as this is today, that if you're a man, you can't change yourself into a woman. Okay? You can take drugs. You can um, change your bodily appearance, but you're still biologically a man if you really are a man and a woman if you really are a woman. No, but people want to change, try and change reality. So there isn't your truth. There's just the truth. And we need to get that point across to our young people, especially because if they don't believe that truth corresponds to reality, not only are they going to be having difficulty here in this real world, they're going to smack up against reality, but it's going to affect their eternity.
So one of the most healthy things you can do for young people is teach them there's truth, objective truth, and they can know it. Here's another word that we sometimes use inappropriately, so to speak, and that is a mistake. You hear the word mistake. We call our sins mistakes. Oh, I made a mistake. I committed adultery. It was a mistake. Well, it was a mistake, but it wasn't just a mistake. It was a sin. Okay. Oh, I stole. That was a mistake. It was a mistake, but it was really a sin. Look, mistakes are what you do when you add up your checkbook wrong. Sins are what you do when you actually violate God's design or God's commands. So we try and sugarcoat our sins with mistakes. And we're not calling it really what it is. It's not a mistake. It's a sin. It's a violation of God's design for us, of God's commands for us. It's a violation of really what's best for you and others. You're violating that when you sin. It's not just a mistake. I also just use the word inappropriate. You know, we, we like to use the word inappropriate rather than immoral. We used to call things immoral. We don't call them immoral anymore. We say that's inappropriate behavior. Inappropriate. Like, it almost sounds like it's just convention. It's just cultural. It's inappropriate to wear white after Labor Day. It's inappropriate to burp at the table, right? It's inappropriate. It's violating manners. No, this isn't just violating manners when you commit adultery. It's not just violating manners when you steal something. It's not just violating manners when you do something that's really immoral. It's not just inappropriate. It's immoral. But we like to make ourselves feel better by just calling it inappropriate. We're not facing up to the truth because we can't handle the truth. I'm Frank Turek. Hopefully we're handling the truth here. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek of the American Family Radio Network. Check out our website, crossexamine.org, crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. And by the way, it's the end of the year now. If you're listening to this uh, on Saturday, it's past the end of the year. But if you're listening to it just prior to that, I'm recording this on Wednesday, December 30th. Um, and you haven't uh, donated yet and you'd like to donate to us we are grateful because this is listener supported radio and listener supported uh, a listener supported podcast as well go to crossexamine.org all of your donations go 100% toward ministry 0% toward buildings we're completely virtual we come to you you don't come to us so we try and pour all of our resources into actually doing ministry so thank you for the donations you've provided already today we are talking about the fact that there are a lot of words used out there that are really sugarcoating lies because beauty is the battlefield upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. And we try and make either things look attractive that are sinful or at least less unattractive by changing the language we use. Take the word tolerance, for example. <clears throat> um, tolerance once meant, <clears throat> excuse me, respecting and hearing those with whom you disagree. Now, tolerance means that you must agree and celebrate with everything, say, I want to do or someone claiming that you need to be tolerant wants you to do. Anyone who disagrees, however, with what I want to do will not be tolerated. They will be slandered and silenced. People who use the word tolerance. I mean, 
That's the way it's often used in the public square today. It didn't mean like it used to mean, even though I disagree with your ideas, I will tolerate you and tolerate those ideas. Now it means you must celebrate and agree with everything I say. Celebrate my sin or I will hurt you. Agree with me or else. Basically, that's what it means in today's culture. Now, by the way, tolerance and its classical meaning required you to disagree with what was being done or said. Because in order for you to tolerate something, you have to disagree with it. You don't tolerate things you agree with. You tolerate things you disagree with. Mother Teresa, for example, who helped the poor, never had to ask for tolerance. She didn't have to say, would you tolerate me? No, when you're asking for tolerance, typically you're implying that what you're, do what you're doing might be wrong. That's why people have to tolerate it. If you're doing good, nobody, nobody, you never ask for tolerance. You never say, I, I want to go feed the poor. Would you tolerate that? You know, I want to give my money to a, to a charitable and a good cause. Would you tolerate that? I want to treat people with love and kindness. Would you tolerate? You don't have to ask for tolerance when you're doing good. You only have to ask for it when you might be doing or are doing evil. But we use the word tolerance because, sure, we, we want to be tolerant, right? We want to respect people and respect what they say. And even if we disagree with what they say, we, we want to respect them. And we want to give them the opportunity to express themselves. Those, those are good things. The problem is our culture has redefined it to mean now you must celebrate what I want to do, even if what I'm doing is sinful. Now, are Christians commanded to be tolerant, ladies and gentlemen? Think about it. No, Christians are not commanded to be tolerant. Tolerance is too weak. Tolerance says, hold your nose and put up with them. Love says, reach out and help them. And in order to love people, sometimes you can't tolerate what they want to do because what they want to do is going to hurt them or others. In fact, that leads us to our next word. Love. What does love mean? Well, if someone says you should love and you should love me, you might want to ask them, well, first of all, what do you mean by love? It typically meant to seek the good of the other person. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love always protects. Love always rejoices in the truth. However, now typically what love means is it means you must approve of everything I do. It's very similar to tolerance now. You must approve of everything I do. And by the way, if you say I'm doing wrong, you're wrong for telling me I'm doing wrong. <laughs> you see, only the people who can tell you you're doing wrong are actually doing wrong. Those are the only people that can say you're doing wrong back to you. If you call somebody out on their sin or say it's wrong to tell people they're doing wrong. You know, sometimes I get, I get emails from people. This is rare, but every once in a while I get an email. If I say something that someone doesn't disagree, that, that someone doesn't agree with, or if I say, so-and-so said this, and I disagree with it, especially if so-and-so is a Christian. And I say, look, I disagree with what that person said. They'll write me and they'll say, you ought not criticize other Christians. Now, <laughs> what, what, is, what is that person actually doing? Criticizing me, who's another Christian. They're saying you ought not criticize other Christians as they criticize me for criticizing other Christians. I guess they, they just don't see the hypocrisy in that. 
And by the way, Paul criticized other Christians. He did so right in the book of Galatians. He went after Peter, who was not acting consistently uh, by, uh, by not hanging out with people who um, were Gentiles and separating himself from them and requiring some Gentiles to obey the Old Testament law, which was something they had already decided they shouldn't do back in the first church council as recorded in Acts chapter 15. So he basically called out Peter for his bad behavior right there in the Bible. It's right there. So don't tell me we can't in a appropriate way, call other Christians out when they're doing something wrong. In fact, if we don't do that, we're not really loving. In fact, if you love me and you know, I'm about to do something wrong or I'm advocating something or some doctrine or something that's leading people astray. If you love me, you'll try and tell me that. That's what love does. And every parent knows this. If you tolerate everything your kid wants to do, you're not loving. You have to stand in the way of evil. Otherwise, you're unloving. In fact, Michael Brown and I had a debate a couple of years ago at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I think it's on our website. Um, does The title of it is, does, does love require approval or does 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 love and tolerance require affirmation? Something like that. Anyway, we're having a debate with a couple of folks from the LGBT, LGBT community on that basic issue. Does love require approval? And uh, at one point in the debate, I asked the folks on the other side, I said, do you love us? And they said, yes. And I said, do you approve of our position and what we're saying here? They said, no. I said, well, you just lost the debate then. Because you're saying that love requires approval, and yet you don't approve of what we say. We're saying that love does not require approval. In fact, love requires disapproval if what is being said or done is wrong. And that's what we're doing. We're saying what you're saying is wrong. Now, we still love you, but that's one reason we're saying it, because we love you. Also, we try and beautify our lust by calling it love. That's why we'll say we're not shacking up with somebody. We are taking the next step in our commitment to one another. Now, if you're doing that, you know what you're really saying? What you really mean to say, if you were honest, is that you would say to your partner, you know, you're good enough to use, but you're not good enough to love. You're good enough to have sex with, but you're not good enough to really commit to. That's really what you're saying. But you don't want to say that, do you? Just lost a lot of listeners. Sorry. Just trying to tell you the truth here. We're beautifying lust by calling it love. Love, by definition, binds itself to the loved one. It seeks the best for the loved one. It always protects the loved one. It rejoices in the truth. It doesn't go halfway. It goes all the way. There's a new word out there, by the way. Have you heard the word entanglement? Yeah, that's the new word for adultery. I got entangled in another relationship as if you were just swimming along and somehow inadvertently got entangled in a net or entangled in a trap. In fact, that's actually the words, now that I think of it, used by Solomon in Proverbs when he talks about the adulterer being caught in a trap. Yeah, you're caught in a trap. 
You are entrapped, but it's by your own choice. It wasn't a mistake. Like you inadvertently added up your checkbook wrong. It was you actually took an overt step of disobedience, of rebellion, and committed adultery. And you're trying to make it sound better by calling it entanglement. Oh, how about choice? You hear that a lot. Freedom to choose in the abortion debate. The question you want to ask when people say freedom to choose is freedom to choose what? You know, if you're the parent of a toddler, your back is turned to the toddler and you hear the toddler behind you or maybe a five-year-old saying, Daddy, can I kill it? What should be your first question? What is it? If it's a spider, okay. If it's your baby brother, no. (laughs) You've got to figure out what they're talking about. But we're going to cover our desire to get rid of an inconvenient human being by calling it a choice. My wife and I have had two miscarriages. We have three sons, but two miscarriages in between them. When she miscarried, we didn't think we lost a choice. We lost a son or a daughter. But the phrase freedom to choose is a phrase meant to ensure that women are free to abort their children. Now, it's an important note here. Notice that no one on the other side of this debate, the leftists who put this forth, use freedom to choose when it applies to a woman with living children who would like the freedom to choose their child's school, their child's health care, or whether or not their children have abortions. No, you don't have a freedom to choose then. So they're trying to make something evil sound good because everybody's for choice. Who doesn't like choice? I like choice. You like choice. Yeah, but the choice to do what? Here we are trying to beautify something ugly by our language. You also hear the word or the compound word anti-choice. You're anti-choice. Not your pro-life, you're anti-choice. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm anti- you're right. I'm anti-murder, okay? <laughs> okay, put me down for that. I'm also anti-slavery. Is that okay? Is that okay with you? Of course. There's a lot of things I'm anti because I'm anti things that are going to be hurtful, that are sinful, that are wrong. And if you're not anti those things, you're not loving. I'm Frank Turk. The program's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And our website's crossexamined.org. Don't forget to download our free app, two words in the app store, crossexamined. We're back in just a couple of minutes. See you then. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, said Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 5. And we're doing that in our culture, sometimes even the church. We are applying different meanings to words that should mean something else. We are coding our evil in beautiful sounding words and terms. We've talked about a number of them so far here this morning. My name is Frank Turk, by the way. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. We were talking just before the break about choice and freedom to choose. Freedom to choose what? There's another phrase being used now by the uh, pro-abortion people, and uh, this is called the product of conception. Have you heard this phrase yet? The product of conception. Uh, there, I just saw a video recently. It was on Lila Rose's Twitter feed. Lila Rose heads a, a pro-life group, and it was, I think it's pinned at the top of her Twitter feed. It was a clip from testimony about Planned Parenthood selling fetal body parts, baby body parts. And the lady was referring to these body parts as the product of conception. And when pressed, she would say, oh, yeah, there's a heart or there's a leg. Or... But the general term for it was the product of conception. Well, I got news for you, everyone. Everyone's the product of conception. They're human beings. Everyone listening to my voice right now is a product of conception. Is that what you're going to call a human being? The product of conception? No, you're trying to make something sound innocuous. You're trying to make an evil that you're doing sound innocuous. We're just looking for the product of conception. We're selling the product of conception. You're selling baby body parts. She even admitted at one point in this video that she's seen a beating heart in the product of conception, in the baby. This is what we do when we try and make the evil that we want to do sound better. We're trying to beautify the ugly. We're trying to moralize the immoral. We're trying to make something evil sound good. Inclusion and diversity, those are great terms, right? Everybody wants to be included, and we want to have people from diverse backgrounds, and we want to celebrate all that. Except what it really means is that every diverse viewpoint and behavior is to be heard and celebrated, except those that do not agree with leftist ideology. Those are not to be included. Those people, even though they hold a diverse viewpoint, are to be excluded. You see, inclusion and diversity mean to corporate elites especially that if you don't agree with our values, you're going to be excluded. And as I've mentioned to you before, back in 2011, when I was doing corporate training, I was fired by both Cisco and Bank of America because I wrote a book called Correct Not Politically Correct, How Same-Sex Marriage Hurts Everyone. Never brought the book up at work, as you know, at any of the training I did. The people who took my training, leadership training, loved it. Even the guy who complained about my book loved the training, he admitted. But in the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, I was excluded for holding a diverse view. Neither was I tolerated. But it sounds so good, right? Inclusion and diversity. Yet typically, it's covering the fact that you must support behaviors which you know through natural law and through biblical revelation are behaviors 
that you can't support, that God does not want us in, doesn't want us to engage in. And yet, in the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, you will support those or we will hurt you. How about the word progressive? That sounds like such a good word. Who doesn't want to be progressive? Who doesn't want to progress? Well, actually, what that means is, in reality, that's the word we call our disagreements with Jesus and his apostles. We call the word progressive when, in fact, we are being regressive. We'd rather change God than change ourselves. In fact, we just had a video put up this week from, actually, it was from a church Q&A video on our YouTube channel. And thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel. We're nearing 250,000 subscribers. Praise God for that. And we just put out this video that makes the point. Someone actually asked me at a church. The question was, can you be a Christian and disagree with God? And I said, well, I suppose it's possible, but it's not a place I would want to be. I would not want to disagree with God. I think God is smarter than me. I think God... It's the standard of truth and righteousness and justice. So I want to align myself to him. I said, however, there are people out there calling themselves progressive Christians when they're neither progressive, nor are they Christians because they disagree with Jesus on, on several major issues. They disagree with Jesus on sex. They disagree with Jesus on the Bible. They disagree with Jesus on heaven and hell. They disagree with Jesus actually on his own atonement. So why would you call yourself a Christian? You say, well, Frank, you get to define who a Christian is and who isn't. Well, let me just give you a, a very simple analogy here or a simple thought experiment. If we were all at the base of Mount Sinai, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and we looked at the Ten Commandments after Moses said, here they are, Yahweh gives us these Ten Commandments. And we look at those Ten Commandments and go, we don't like those Ten. We got our own Ten. Should we call ourselves followers of Yahweh? Of course not. We're not followers of Yahweh. We're followers of ourselves. That's not progressive. If Yahweh is God and he has commands for us, we need to agree with them and obey them. We shouldn't call ourselves followers of Yahweh if we're not following Yahweh. Likewise, we shouldn't call ourselves followers of Buddha if we're not following Buddhist teachers. We shouldn't call us followers of, of uh, Allah if uh, we shouldn't call ourselves Muslims if we're not following the Quran or Allah's teachings, we shouldn't call us, call ourselves Israelites or Yahweh followers if we're not following Yahweh. And we shouldn't call ourselves Christians if we're not following Jesus. If we're expressly disagreeing with Jesus and not following his teachings, why should we call ourselves Christians? It's not progressive. It's actually regressive, but it sounds so good to be progressive, doesn't it? How about the word equality? It no longer means equality as human beings or equality before the law. Now it means equality of behavior and outcome. That's what it means. In fact, uh, Hillary Ferrer, who wrote, along with a bunch of other uh, women apologists, wrote the book Mama Bear Apologetics. Great book. We had her on the program uh, last year. And uh, she writes this on page 71 of Mama Bear Apologetics. The side that controls the words love, truth, tolerance, justice, and equality is the side that can shut the conversation down, compel people to act without thinking, blur the issues, vilify the opponent, and basically win the argument on emotions alone. Why? 
because everyone already believes in love, tolerance, justice, and equality. Yes, indeed. We already do. The, the problem is we're stuffing a different definition into the word equality than what it really does mean or should mean or has meant. It used to mean we're all equal as human beings because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And we're all equal before the law in America. Anyway, we're supposed to be equal before the law. We shouldn't be treating people differently based on the law. Everybody is subject to the rule of law. But today it means equality of behavior and outcome. That means, as we'll see here in a few minutes, people must be brought down a notch to bring other people up, or people must have their resources taken and given to others in order to equal things out. There's no equality of outcome here in America or here on earth, just like there will be no equality of outcome in heaven. People are judged based upon their behaviors. Even Christians are judged based on their behaviors. They'll either get rewards or lose rewards based on their behaviors. They'll get to heaven on account of grace, but they're judged on their behaviors. And to say that all behaviors are equal is just false. That's why the whole marriage equality thing was built on a false premise. Everyone already had marriage equality before same-sex marriage was imposed on society. Everyone had the equal right to marry somebody of the opposite sex. That's what marriage was. To say that nobody, that some people didn't have that right? No, everyone had the same right. But what people wanted was they wanted to redefine what marriage was. Everyone already had marriage equality, but they wanted to change marriage into something it wasn't. That's not equality. The marriage between a man and a woman is a different behavior than the marriage between two men or two women or several people. It's just different behaviors. You treat equal things equally. You don't treat different things equally. Same-sex marriage and opposite-sex marriage are different. By the very admission of people who wanted same-sex marriage, if they weren't different, they would just marry somebody of the opposite sex and be done with it. The very reason they wanted same-sex marriage is because they, they knew the behavior was different. Well, that's a different behavior. It's not the same behavior as marriage between a man and a woman. It's just not. They're two different things. So to demand equality of outcome is not what equality has normally meant. But equality sounds so good that everybody's got to be for equality. Same thing is with the word gay, right? It used to mean cheerful and merry. Now it means sexual contact between men. It's something sounding good. Gender. Gender once... <laughs> we, we once thought gender to be a designed, unchangeable, biologically-based sexual identity. Now it's known to be completely socially constructed. You don't have to pay attention to anatomy or reproduction. In fact, in 1828, Webster defined gender as a sex, male or female. Now the definition is the behavioral, cultural, and psychological traits typically associated with one sex. In other words, it's just something that is socially constructed. Gender is, or individually constructed even. Doesn't mean biological sex anymore. Maybe associated with that, but it's whatever you think it is. How about the word justice? Justice used to mean individuals getting what they deserve, an impartial and fair application of the law. What does it mean now? 
Justice means equality of outcome, going back to the equality issue. The redistribution of wealth, stealing from one group to give to another group. That's what justice means now. And social justice, its cousin, used to mean helping to care for orphans and widows, the poor, the unborn. That's what the biblical concept meant. Now it means oppressed groups must be liberated, which in turn means discriminated against groups of people based on their perceived social standing. And I'll unpack this further after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. By the way, we have the Essentials of Christianity course almost full now in the premium version. It begins January 1. If you're hearing this after January 1, you can still sign up in the first week. Seven Zoom sessions with me. We'll be talking about the Essentials of the Faith, 17 hours of video as well. Hope you can join us. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, sign up today because we're running out of room. Back in two. Don't go anywhere. Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek, American Family Radio Network. I mentioned the Essentials course coming up here, January 1, 2, 1. That's officially when it drips. You can sign up after that, but that's when it starts. And we're going to be together for at least seven or eight weeks and doing seven Zoom sessions, as I mentioned. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. There's a bunch of other courses up there. we got some new ones coming up this year, too. One with Jay Warner Wallace. Another one with another one with Sean McDowell coming up. Also, I want to mention on uh, January 17th, I'll be privileged to uh, again be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, the great church out there with my friend Jack Kibbs. It's Pro-Life Sunday. I'll be giving a message on pro-life. So hope to see you out there if you're out there for uh, Jack's uh, church called Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. I know it's not really Jack's church. He's just a senior pastor, but does a wonderful job out there. Just love going there. People are so encouraging and uh, there's such an energy because so many churches in California are closed. And Jack just said, look, God wants us to worship. If you want to take uh, protections, you can. You want to be socially distanced, you can. We have a section for that. But if you also want to take responsibility for your own health, you can come into the sanctuary and worship with us. And that's what they've been doing for several months now. And the church has grown dramatically, making a great impact. Anyway, we're talking about social justice. I've heard people say you don't even need the word social in front of justice. (laughs) But if you want to use the term social justice, you've got to make sure you know what it means today. As I say, it used to mean care for orphans and widows, the poor, the unborn. In other words, bringing justice socially. Now it means that oppressed groups must be liberated. Who are the oppressed groups? You know the oppressed groups. Um, Peoples of color. And look, there's some truth to this. <laughs> Obviously, there, there is, there has been oppression and sometimes is oppression in forms of racism and these kind of things. Um, but the solution called critical theory is worse than the disease. And go back to our show with Neil Shenvey just a couple of weeks ago on social justice and critical theory to go far deeper. Also, of course, they're going to say LGBTQ and uh, immigrants and indigenous people Uh, These are people are all oppressed groups and they need to be liberated from the oppressors. That's what social justice means today. Oh, also, any group that's non-Christian is an oppressed group. 
So Christians are the oppressors, according to this critical theory. Now, this, of course, denies this definition of social justice, denies our unity in Christ. If you go to Galatians chapter three, where Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, those distinctions still exist. We're not denying there aren't, there aren't man, men and women. We're not denying there aren't Jew and Gentile. We're not denying the fact that there are, at, at that point, slave meaning servants or free people. They exist, but they're unified in Christ, that all those people are equal in Christ, that we ought not be treating them differently because they're equal in Christ. And social theory, or I should say critical theory, denies that. It creates animosity between different groups. It creates inequality between different groups. Exactly what it's saying, it's trying to alleviate, it's producing. Harvard, by the way, thought it had too many Asians, so they decided to penalize Asians by requiring them to have higher SAT scores than other ethnic groups. This is what critical theory does. This, they considered this to be social justice. Let's penalize the achievers because they're doing too well and we got to even all this stuff out. Well, if that's the definition of social justice, I don't want any part of it and neither does Jesus, neither do the apostles. They don't want to treat, they don't want individual behavior to be usurped under group identity. But that's what critical theory does. That's what social justice means today. It means to liberate oppressed groups by actually just oppressing the so-called oppressors. It does exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. It turns Martin Luther King on its head. I have a dream that one day my children will be judged based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Social justice today does exactly the opposite. It judges people as groups based on the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. There are many other words. Actually, there are words out there that are used to make you, if you hold a particular position, sound ugly. So in addition to try and beautify sinful behavior, they try and make righteous behavior sound ugly. So if you disagree with someone, they may call you a bigot. They use that word bigot. Now, the easiest way to diffuse this, if somebody calls you a bigot, is just stop and say, what do you mean by bigotry? Define that for me. What do you mean by that? Is it because I don't agree with you, I'm a bigot? Well, if that's the case, you're a bigot because you don't agree with me. I mean, <laughs> where are you coming up with this definition of bigotry? I asked that once to a same-sex marriage advocate. He called me a bigot because I had written the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct. And I said, what do you mean by bigotry? He said, fear and intolerance. Just two more words that needed to be defined. I said, that's not the definition of bigotry. <laughs> the definition of bigotry is prejudging things before you have any evidence for the position. Or even going against the evidence that you already know. And I said, sir, with all due respect, if anyone's a bigot, it's you. Because I've written an entire book on this topic, which you haven't read. You don't even know why I believe what I believe, and yet you're calling me a bigot. 
So you are prejudging me without any evidence. That's what bigotry is. You may be called a hater. What does hater mean? Hater means you just disagree with me. <laughs> Anybody that disagrees with me. And by the way, a hate group is any group of people that disagrees with me. <laughs> See, that, that, that's what that means. This is not helpful. Because somebody disagrees with you, they're not necessarily a hater. They just may have a different opinion. They may have different facts that they've discovered that you don't know about. They may actually be right. And by the way, would you be a hater if you disagreed with them? If all disagreement means the person disagreeing is a hater, then everybody's a hater and the word means nothing anymore. The word intolerant, we've talked about it, but they'll call you intolerant. What do you mean by intolerant? Does intolerant mean you dis disagree with me? Actually, what it means now is it describes anyone who doesn't agree with, say, a leftist. That's what intolerant means. Now, there's an important caveat here. The word intolerant does not apply to leftists who do not agree with Christians or conservatives. See? Tolerance is a one-way street, in other words. And it's only the people who disagree with leftist ideology who are declared intolerant. Notice that conservatives rarely go around calling people intolerant. We just don't. We say, look, okay, the guy disagrees with me. I get it. Okay, maybe he has reasons. Okay, fine. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are ugly people on both sides. Don't get me wrong. But generally, it seems like the left and the cancel culture left now is trying to shut down debate by calling people names. The ad hominem fallacy in logic where you just call your opponent names rather than deal with the argument. Anti-choice is another one. We mentioned that earlier. You're anti-choice. You're also called a homophobe. You're called a transphobe. You're called an Islamophobe. All these phobias, supposedly. You express some skepticism about Islam. Suddenly, you're an Islamophobe. You express some skepticism about young girls transitioning at eight years old by taking hormone blockers or other drugs or actually having surgery and suddenly you're a transphobe. Yeah, I, I count me down as a transphobe if, if transphobia means I'm trying to protect little girls or little boys from making life altering life altering decisions that will dramatically affect them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, call me a phobe. I, I am. A, I do have a phobia of of treating children that way. We shouldn't do that. That's called child abuse for some sort of political agenda. No, what we need to do is we need to follow the truth. And if you look at the truth, if you look at the evidence for this, this is not something that ought to be done. In fact, Abigail Schreier has a book out. I can't remember the name of it, but she's, it's basically saying that, I guess I could look it up while I'm sitting here. It's basically pointing out the dangers of changing, uh, putting young children through this. It's called Irreversible Damage. That's the name of the book. The transgender craze seducing our daughters. It was initially taken off the shelves at Target, Target. Um, and then after enough people said, hey, this is wrong, it went back on the shelves there at Target. I don't go to Target traditionally because of their political stance, <laughs> but getting to the point where you can't go anywhere now. But anyway, um, irreversible damage. She's just pointing that out. She's not a transphobe. She's caring about young girls. They don't have the capacity to make those decisions at that age. 
And yet Joe Biden said, yeah, oh yeah, an eight-year-old girl should be able to make that choice. When you're eight years old, you don't know enough to do that. And the data show that even if you're 28 years old and you change your body, you go through transgender surgery, it does not change your your future in a positive way. The suicide rate remains at 19 times higher than the general public. You don't change a mental issue through surgery. If there's a if there's a if there's a difference, a mismatch between your psychology and your biology, you have to work to change your psychology. You don't change your biology. You can't change your biology. It's like anorexia. If someone had a mismatch between their psychology and their biology, they think they're overweight when they're really dangerously thin. You don't give that person liposuction. You wouldn't affirm their psychological state. You would get them psychiatry to help them. And that's what we ought to do. But no, you're called a transphobe if you say that. These are all just words to silence you. Well, we ought not be silent, friends. If we want to help people, if we want to love people, we have to tell them the truth. I'm Frank Turek. I hope I've told you the truth today. If you want to write in and say I haven't, or even if you want to say I have or you have a question, write me at hello at crossexamine.org, hello at crossexamine.org. Don't forget about the essentials course starting next week. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and I hope to see you next week. God bless. See you then. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.